It's not about can we do it. It was more about how we do it. I always expected people to say no. And then when someone said yes, I was like, what? <laughs> Actually, you want to do this? <laughs> I just had to keep putting one foot in front of the other. The whole world is like, what exactly have you smoked again? This is The Raise, where we take you behind the scenes into the capital raising journeys of startup founders. Some you may have heard of, others you need to hear about, and all of whom have been through it to close a raise. On the show, you'll learn how founders make the difficult decisions. Whether you're a founder yourself or you're simply interested in the fast-moving, innovative world of startups, this show is for you. I'm your host, Mylin Dang. I'm Managing Director of capital raising law firm Metis Law. For over a decade, I've worked with founders to raise capital so they can build businesses that make a lasting impact. Today, I'm chatting with Dr. Kevin Cheng, the founder of Osana. Osana is a social enterprise that is changing the way healthcare is delivered, from a reactive, price-driven model to a proactive, value-based model. Kevin is a GP, has a fellowship with the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners and an MBA from INSEAD in France. Kevin has also worked for strategy consulting firms McKinsey & Co and Boston Consulting Group. Kevin has one of the most impressive CVs I have come across. So I was curious to know how he made the big decision to give up a stable and prestigious career for a shot in the perilous startup world. You'll hear the answer to that question on this episode. You'll also hear how Kevin raised $13 million from a single private investor off the bat of a few dinners and how his startup is seriously improving the health of his patients. Let's dive in. Welcome to the show, Kevin. It's great to have you here. Lovely to be on your podcast, Marlene. Thank you for inviting me. Kevin, your company is Osana. You have an exciting vision for changing the way healthcare is delivered in Australia. What's your elevator pitch? It is that we focus our health system on prevention and we keep people healthy and happy and away from the health system as much as possible. Osana released a white paper titled A New GP Model, The Case for Investing in Value-Based Primary Care. The first sentence in the white paper is, and I'll quote, even prior to the shock of COVID-19, the Australian Department of the Treasury had forecasted that healthcare costs would cannibalise state revenue by 2046, leaving no funding for other industries, including roads, schools, public transport, police, prisons and emergency services. Kevin, this is frightening. Why aren't we hearing more conversations about this in the mainstream consciousness? It was meant to be a bit provocative. Hopefully <laughs> it raises some it worked. interesting debate. <laughs> I had the privilege of working on public health and health policy and crunching numbers for health systems here and abroad and really taking a helicopter picture view of how healthcare was being funded and delivered. That's what got me interested in our current venture to focus on prevention. And one of the telling insights was that we spend more on healthcare. And in fact, we've done that since war times. So most OECD countries, the rate of healthcare costs growth is faster than GDP growth. It's about one or 2% higher than GDP growth for the last 50, 80 years. And then there are debates on, well, if we're wealthier as a country, we should be able to spend more on healthcare. Some call it a luxury good. We should take better care of ourselves and that's great. 
the issue is when the pendulum swings the other way and we're spending more and more, it gets to a point where it becomes unaffordable. And so healthcare is now the biggest cost bucket, if you like, for government expenditure. And much of health is a social redistribution system where we raise money from taxes to pay for it. And so the current scenario, the current kind of projections mean that healthcare will consume more and more of government revenues, household budgets, and it will become increasingly expensive to a point where we can't afford it. And so I think that's a burning platform for change where we need to do something today. And I suppose there there are a lot of short-term views in healthcare. If you think about political cycles, even the tenure of CEOs and executives that run healthcare companies, we are looking at maybe three to five years. But if we look for 10 to 20 years, that's where we will fall off this cliff and there will be increasing pressure on healthcare, more so post-COVID as well. It's really interesting to hear the term value-based services in the health industry. In the legal profession, we've been talking about value-based services for over a decade and we're really struggling still to educate our clients on what that means. Kevin, what does value-based primary care mean? So primary care, to start with that part of the definition, is often the first point of call that you, as a person, uh, seek help from in the healthcare system. I'm a GP by trade, and that would often be the case where patients who have an initial symptom or an issue would come see their GP. I think 87% of Australians see their GP every year, which is a good thing, I would argue. Value-based just means we are actually getting good value for the funding that we invest into healthcare. It also means at an individual level that we're getting a good outcome or a good result for the healthcare service that is being provided. I do think there are common analogies between the legal profession and the medical profession. The term billable time might also be relevant in your industry, Marlene. And as a GP, billable time has been ingrained in our day-to-day workflows because of Medicare. We get paid from the Medicare system. Yes, we might have co-payments on top of that where patients pay out of pocket, but for the most part, it is Medicare funded and Medicare trains us in a way to value each minute as billable time. And so that's a very big focus on activity and volume. But importantly, it doesn't focus on the result for patients. So to put it crudely, I could do a lot of things, but not deliver a good result for the patients that I look after. So value-based just means we should focus on the outcomes and the health results. So primary care is seeing your GP or points in the community when you seek help first. And value-based means uh, getting a good outcome for that help. There's convincing evidence that value-based primary care results in better outcomes, and this is set out in your white paper, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. What results has Osana achieved with this model? So we are very proud of how our team have done something different. We have had the, again, privilege to work with other groups overseas that have pioneered different models of healthcare before us and we've learned from them. So we really focus on prevention. And the results of that preventative approach in three areas. The first is that in the area of wellness, living healthy every day, that most people can relate to. We can help those who are overweight or obese lose weight by 10 to 20%. We can improve mental health symptoms by 25%. We can reduce risk factors such as harmful drinking, smoking by 25%. The second area would be managing chronic health conditions. So with our aging population, we will have conditions that are not acute, not limited to a short period of time. 
but there may be lifelong, such as diabetes, heart disease, arthritis, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, those sorts of things. So we generally double the industry standards on managing those conditions to clinical targets. And clinical targets just mean if you follow the best evidence clinical guidelines and we aim for a measurement that meets a particular target, it means patients are better off. They have a better health result. They have less health complications later in life. They have a better quality of life. They can live longer. And we're quite proud of that. And then the third area is keeping people well and out of the hospital system. And so we've reduced hospital risks in the past by about 50%. And we have demonstrated that we can reduce hospital risks lifelong into the future by 20%. That means one in five people won't go to hospital under our care. Wow, those numbers are amazing. What does the experience for a patient actually look like, Kevin, when they go to Osana? The main one is we like to see people when they're well, not just wait until they get sick. So it's earlier prevention rather than later. It's proactive rather than reactive. And in a way, it's more healthcare now rather than more healthcare later, which may be in a hospital, may involve surgery. And I like to use analogies, Marlene, that you probably already know. Many GPs could be defined as a breakdown service. You get sick and you go see your doctor. And we want to really change that on its head. And we want to see people for preventative maintenance. So if you're a car, you don't wait until it breaks down and you call the breakdown service, you actually have regular servicing. And if you go see a dentist, you have regular checkups. You don't wait until the nasty root canal that can happen. So likewise for the rest of your body, we want to encourage regular checkups and preventative health. So the experience really is to come in regularly and we can look at risk factors, symptoms before that become a problem. You mentioned before things like dealing with weight loss and quitting smoking and things like that. It's an holistic approach, which you start not necessarily when you're older or when you're sick. That's right. There are so many facets of our lives that impact our health. The pandemic probably has highlighted that as well. If we're stressed with our work, relationships, finances, there's a lot of worry that can translate into how people are feeling in terms of their mental well-being. And then the brain impacts the body and then the body impacts how we think and feel as well. So everything's interrelated. So we do need to take that holistic perspective. So we look at the whole person and in order to do that, we have a team. So that's the other big point of difference is no matter how good my GP colleagues are, no one can know it all and and do it all. So we bring a team together. We bring experts who are dietitians that know all about nutrition and gut health. We bring exercise physiologists, psychologists, we have health coaches who really look at the intrinsic motivation of how people live their lives and we bring together great GPs, we have health assistants. So we work well as as a team to form that holistic picture and look at the whole person. So you can almost see this as a package working side by side with like a gym membership in terms of from a patient perspective looking after your health. It used to be that you go to the doctor when you're sick, but now you're working with your doctor and the allied health professionals and you can go to the gym and exercise and get fit as well. Yeah, that's right. One of the other analogies is thinking about our service as longitudinal and relationship-based versus much of healthcare that I've seen over the years is transactional and episodic. So in a crude way, it could be like going to a restaurant and you could go there once and never go back. 
but we're like a meal plan where we're cooking for you every day for a year and, and we're getting you to a better goal. I love it. I could talk to you all day about preventative healthcare, Kevin, and you have an excellent podcast called Prevention Hacks, which I love and I've learned a lot about it and highly recommend it. But I'd like to talk to you about yourself and your journey as a founder. Before starting Asana, you were an advisor to governments in Australia and overseas. You worked with some of the world's leading consulting firms to advise firms on corporates on how to effect change. And now you're the sole founder of a startup out there doing it yourself. Now you have a beautiful young family and families take up a lot of our energy, time and money. Why, Kevin, why would you give up a well-paid and some would say a very prestigious career to become a startup founder? That's a good question. And there's different facets to the answer. And thank you for all your support since day one. The short version of the answer is because it's worth it. And then if I was to unpick it for myself, I really wanted to work in areas where I had impact. And it wasn't necessarily the money, wasn't necessarily the prestige. And those things, I suppose, mattered more in the early parts of my career. But at some point, it became satisfaction around, have I built something that can impact others? And so there was a real social mission to and purpose to finding what really filled my cup and where I could really help out the most. And for me, it was really a marriage between being a GP, having a medical background, having worked in business for many years, and then working in the health policy space and with research organizations. So in a way, Asana is a combination of those aspects. It's medical, it's business, it's research. We saw amazing entrepreneurs who developed changes in health systems overseas. And whilst it wasn't easy, healthcare is one of the most resistant to change industries, I would say, uh, compared to other industries that I've worked in. But through working through the challenges and making some of the changes stick, they were able to help thousands and millions of people and transform their lives. And that's what gets me up every day. And that's what led me to think about this idea and find social investors and get a great team on board to give it a crack, really. And when it comes to what happens at home, I think if you're fulfilled, then other parts of your life are positive as well. You know, you come home and you're not feeling deflated because you don't feel like you've contributed. You're not uh, resentful in any way about a workplace because there's X, Y, Z things that you can't change. And so I've always been interested in opportunities and things that you could do differently. And so really for me, it was about shaping my own destiny, feeling satisfied with what I do day to day, and then being able to come home and kind of share that journey with my family. We can talk about the experience of being a founder as well. It's not always easy. There are sometimes lots of up and downs, not sometimes always up and downs. There are sometimes long hours. So at times it has been hard, hard in a different way compared to I worked in surgery where there was lots of upside down hours and on call. That was before having a family and kids. I worked in consulting when I was on a plane every second or third day. That was a different type of hard. And this one is a like a problem that stays with you every day all the time. And you're trying to think of different ways to crack it. And then it comes down to the discipline of, you know, having those clear work versus home boundaries and spending quality time with the kids. But it's important. And the kids know that, the family know that. 
you know, I'm somewhat wedded. There's another family, which is the, the Asana clinics and they've been there and all the staff are treated like a family. And so we understand what we want to get out of it personally. And that is kind of shared with across the team and therefore it ensures that we're all aligned on the same page and we know how to kind of give and take with each other. Kevin, did you come up with the idea for Osana while you were still in paid work or did you leave your job and then start Osana? The idea came when I was in various jobs. One, contracting to run programs for federal government, state government, working for health insurance, thinking about how to help patients who are in and out of hospital with complex health conditions, doing research for consultancies, looking at how to integrate care across the healthcare value chain. And through those travels, I guess, understanding that there was a real opportunity to build something up from the grassroots. And at the same time, you know, talking to groups that have done this already overseas. And we did a lot of our homework talking to these groups overseas. We actually flew them into Australia, put them in front of health minister and did lots of roundtable discussions. Or to say they helped provide data points to build the level of conviction that there was an opportunity here to do something special. And that all was done, I guess, when I was still in various advisory or sort of paid jobs. And then there was probably about a six to nine month period where I was having a, a break and also applying that those ideas into a business plan and then raising money for it. What was the inflection point in the planning for Osana that made you take the leap to do it full time? I don't know if there was one point and it certainly wasn't planned. There was a little bit of process of elimination and and my career path has been windy because I thought oh that's an interesting project or, or that and I was always one that didn't conform to the normal you go to medical school you choose a specialty or you become a GP and so I went off to business school I um, took lots of wrong turns I ended up doing work in lots of interesting areas in education in mining and around the world and it was really a process of working out where I fit in and so through the process of taking gaps thinking about what I enjoyed finding the next project that I thought I would enjoy it really sort of led to a point where I thought hey I think I would like to do something else I didn't want to be a full-time doctor I didn't want to be a consultant on a plane all the time with a young family I didn't necessarily want to work for a huge organization and not feel like it was agile and innovative and could foster new ideas. And so almost through a process of elimination, I realized that I wanted to do something myself. And it kind of tugged at me every day, if you like. There was kind of this burning desire to do it. And actually, my wife probably said, you should just go do it. And so <laughs> it would have been the one inflection point. I was going to ask that question. Who did you involve in making that decision? Your wife is a great place to start. Yeah. So, you know, loved ones around me. I valued mentors from a very early stage, even through university days, I found people that would really role model what I thought was an interesting balance in where they could impact the world and then be able to balance things that were important to me, like, you know, family and community. And so I sought out their advice and asked them what they thought about either the merits of the idea versus just kind of taking that leap and doing something yourself. And I think for people close, if they know you well, they'll give you fairly honest opinions. And there's always these kind of trade-offs going from something more secure to something less secure, going from something that's very structured to something that's completely unstructured. But ultimately, it's your own choice. You kind of have to take the input and 
weigh it all up. And then at some point it just becomes, well, you can keep thinking about it or you can just kind of go and do it. <laughs> so at some point we just press go. You mentioned mentors. Who are your mentors, Kevin? I have lots. I have doctors that I've worked with that I've learned a lot from. There are those that I would call mentors in the business world, either clients or other consultants that I work for that I value their journey and their experience and their perspective on life. And even just friends and family as well, uh, mentors in different way. I turn to my sister for a lot of advice. I always run things by my parents. They're pretty old school, but they always give their two cents as well. And I think it's having a good compass and it comes down to values and who you have around you. The compass can only sort of point you in the right direction. You still have to decide what you want to do and when to do it and how to do it. I'd like to talk about your cap raising journey for Osana, Kevin. You've raised $13 million to launch and test the Osana model and the funds have come from a single investor. It's a fantastic effort in anyone's books. How did you meet the investor? Our investor funding partner was an investor at one of the firms I worked at. We also shared a history and had lots of common friends through the consulting world as well. To be honest, it was a meeting of the minds, having an idea of what the model was like. And I've been incubating this idea for many years, informed by, you know, the different sort of projects that I was running. And it was literally a couple of dinners where we said, oh, well, let's give this a go. And it felt easier than it should have been. And I really didn't go through the world of startups and accelerators and raid series of funding. So it may have been atypical in that way. But what was important to me, and you know, there were three or four other options. What was important to me was finding a partner that I felt like I could work with, that I could trust, and that could provide strategic advice as well. It wasn't just about money and capital. It was about how could I work with someone to help me be better and I could learn from so really kind of taking that mentor versus mentee type perspective to finding the right funding partner. So how did you vet him? What questions did you ask? What things did you go through to vet him? I just asked him. I was just interested in his journey as well. He had built his own investment firm. So he's been through the startup. That was, I think, quite an important validation of someone who understood what the journey was going to be like. I asked about his family, his views on life. That was important because it's important to me to have that kind of alignment. And we set this up not as a, a straight commercial exercise. It had elements of being a social enterprise and we were doing research. So it had to be the right type of investor, if you like. And then I probably did my due diligence and asked anyone else that knew him <laughs> as well. And how did he vet you? He probably did the same. We talked a lot about our families and what we wanted to do in life. We talked about our careers to date, everything from when you graduate from high school and you've got these options and the world is your oyster and you've, you've got to do all these things. What's your decision-making process then versus he's a similar age to me and when you're somewhat progressing your career and you've ticked a lot of boxes, what do we do now? You know, how do we give back to his Australian Chinese like me, you know, migrant families in Australia? How do we give back to the country that has nurtured us and our siblings and our families? What things are meaningful to us over the next 10 to 20 years, as opposed to just kind of ticking lots of boxes that we've done to date? So there was an element of that and probably we knew common colleagues. So there was probably a reverse vetting process, if you like. He has a, a team, so he was also talking to his team and so that I could kind of share my vision. And it was probably quite a few data points in order to go through the plan. It wasn't so much the numbers, it was more, why am I doing this? 
And then I suppose there needed to be a firm why, you know, the purpose was really important, more so than what we were going to do or how we were going to do it. Many startups describe themselves as being disruptive, but Osana truly is in my view. You're looking at changing the way people manage their own health and also the way professionals manage patient health and the financial incentivization model attached to the old model. There are so many hurdles for you to overcome for this to be successful. What does the conversation with the investor look like when you're gazing up at this very steep uphill challenge to disrupt not just an issue, but an entire ecosystem? It's not about can we do it. I remember the dinners when we kind of shook hands to get started. It was more about how we do it. So probably that's part of the vetting process, right? Which is if you find someone who thinks like you and you're on the same page, then the problem solving is very much, well, what do we do and when do we do it and how much? And it wasn't so much a sell or a pitch, if you like. I mean, during those early days, you know, I was talking to anyone who was happy to listen. (laughs) I talked to private equity firms, banks, property groups, everyone. If I kind of string together better healthcare, aging population, a lot of those kind of market characteristics long-term were quite favorable. So there was always interest in healthcare and we've kind of seen healthcare assets really become more valuable over the last five to 10 years. But quickly, those conversations would go down a different path, which is, oh, so you're going to build clinics and what's the return on that in three years, like financially? Don't worry about the social impact or the clinical improvement or the ecosystem change, you know. And then I realized that was probably the wrong partner to work with because I would have needed a different business plan for those investors. And so the conversation with mine was very much around, well, we've got this shared vision. You know, who do we talk to and who do we get excited about this and who should we get on the team and what kind of skills? And so it became very tactical pretty quickly. And I remember the early days I was in my bedroom, just kind of like scouring for places to lease out, working out what we could afford. And there was probably a good four or six months of driving to every pocket in Sydney looking at buildings and commercial leases. Not something that I was, you know, experienced with, but and then it got very practical. Oh, shall we have a clinic here? What would that look like? And what does the local community look like? And would they be receptive? So it was more around how do we get started as opposed to it's all too daunting. I, I think there was very much a can-do mindset of this is worth it. It is hard and it's risky, but life is short and let's find the right partners to help us succeed. I love it. And I love how you vetted each other and you found that common vision. We do see founders who change their business model in order to get investment. And then they're constantly just changing their business model to meet the next cap raise. It sounds to me like you came up with an idea, a vision, and you found a partner that matched up with that and you stuck to your vision. And now you're trying different ways to to see what the end result will be. Yeah, that's right. We're doing lots of pivots, just like most businesses are during COVID. And I'm pretty certain that our model will look different in six months, 12 months and keep rolling out. But the vision doesn't change. And importantly, I think our values don't change so much. We focus a lot on team culture and values because we're a small team and young business. Both the vision and the values, I think they're really important to get right because they relate to what you want to do in life personally. And so for me, it'll be quite hard to change those core fundamentals because it's kind of like changing yourself. I think that for me, if I was to do this again, is always to kind of stay true to who you are yourself because it's, it's hard to be someone else. And 
you know, if you keep pivoting and you keep changing, you can change what you do, but if you change who you are and, and why you're doing it, I think that becomes harder and harder. Great advice. I love it. Kevin, what's one thing you can share with other founders who are thinking about raising capital or embarking on the cap raising journey? One thing that I've probably learnt is that the investment is in you rather than in the idea or a set of numbers. It's certainly not in an Excel spreadsheet. So yes, we have to do the planning and look at the problem, a product market fit, the solution, how it's going to commercialize, all of those things. So every page on the pitch deck has to be kind of filled out. But at the end of the day, it's going to be, is there a trust element where an investor believes in you, believes in your passion, believes in your vision? And so that has to be genuine and authentic. And so finding something that you are passionate about probably is step one. And then working on how do you share that vision and your passion with others. And then if you can do that well, then you know your pitch deck becomes very easy because ultimately you'll do a page term with investors and then ultimately they look you in the eye and say, can I work with this person? Can I invest in this person? So that would be one thing to focus on. That's great advice. Before we go, we're going to do something that I call the quick six, which is six rapid fire questions. So you don't need to think about them too much. Kevin, what's your favorite work from home, lunch or snack? Oh, this is a big question, Marlene. I've grown up in food, as you might know. <laughs> yeah. oh, well, we're in lockdown. We've recently discovered uh, poke bowls from a local Korean takeout. So uh, that's very popular at the moment. And anything that keeps the kids happy <laughs> and mess free. Um, what's in your favorite poke bowl? We have two. There's one with fish, kingfish, I think. And then there's one that's tofu and vegetarian. Yum. And so healthy too. What's a great book that you've read recently? Green Lights by Matthew McConaughey about finding your compass in life. Ah, was that his autobiography? Yes. I heard him talking about it one time. Really interesting. I read it. A business coach I had said, hey, Kevin, you should read this. And I bought it for my best friend. I bought it for my um, brother-in-law. So, yeah. A documentary or podcast that you watched or listened to recently that you would recommend? If I can say two, <laughs> I listen to the Chronicast every day. We're in medical, so we're staying on top of the pandemic and all of its challenges. And I think Norma Swan's doing a great job on, on that one. And then I listen to the High Performance Podcast. It's UK-based. It's very sports-oriented. I'm a big sports fan. So I love weird and wonderful sports like snooker and they're basically successful sports people who are in their retirement years and, and they reflect back on their careers and how they would have done this or not that. And, and it's kind of fascinating to see the behind the scenes versions of what people are. It's a bit like the Michael Jordan documentary that came out, you know, he's the beloved kind of best basketball player that ever played. And then the kind of storyline was he ran his team a bit like a tyrant. And, and, you know, it was interesting just to kind of see what happens behind the scenes to enable success. What is the most useful good or service that you've bought in the last 12 months that costs $100 or less? I have one that costs $150, <laughs> which is the standing desk that I'm using now. Good or service? There's a exercise prescription. It's a subscription to a YouTube channel. And our format for exercise is sort of the being time poor, you know, high intensity training. So it's kind of like 10, 15 minutes. And so that comes to mind when it comes to something that we've used for recently. What's that called? Is it a YouTube channel? There's two. There's one called Pamela Reef, 
And then there's another one called Hardcore Hit. Yeah. <laughs> We're in the middle of lockdown and we just need something to give ourselves a bit of a kick up the bottom end and get active. So Sounds good. Sounds like one for my team. <laughs> What's on heavy rotation on your music playlist right now? Listen to classical music and jazz on radio. The kids are just starting to get into jazz instruments, which is a lot of fun. And they're starting to get good enough to, so it's not just screeching violins and (laughs) (laughs) I was just say general genre of jazz music. And last one, Kevin, when you think of the word successful, who do you think of and why? I'll take an easy cop-out answer on this one, which is someone like Elon Musk, who became religious about finding purpose and then converting that into commercial ideas and not taking no for an answer in any way, shape or form. Kevin, I've really enjoyed talking to you today. We'll have links to your contact details and those for Asana in our show notes. We're also going to link to an excellent article that you wrote about saving lives during COVID because you did mention COVID and uh, CoronaCast before. That'll be a very interesting read for our listeners. Kevin, thank you so much for sharing your story with me today. I'm very grateful for you. It's been a pleasure, Marlene. Thank you for having me and good luck with the podcast. It's wonderful. Thank you. You've been listening to The Raise, a show that takes you behind the scenes into founder stories about capital raising. This podcast is brought to you by Termsheet Guru, a product from the expert team at Metis Law. Create kick-ass capital raising term sheets with Termsheet Guru and learn how to negotiate term sheets with confidence. To find out more, head to the website termsheet.guru. That's T-E-R-M-S-H-E-E-T dot G-U-R-U. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Raise, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Mylin Dang, and we'll be back next episode with another deep dive into our founder's capital raising story. Hold up. 